Listener Production. G'day, this is not Will Anderson from the title of the podcast, producer Mike here, keeping your company over summer with some of the highlights from 2023, great moments to relive if you've heard all the eps or a bit of a sampler pack if you haven't, you can go back and listen to the episodes in full if you like what you're hearing. This episode, you're going to hear from several internationals, some big gets. We got Fortune Five star, uh, Jason Leong, amongst others, uh, and some locals as well. Scout Boxel talks about accessibility, Liam Stapleton on his start in radio. But we're going to start uh, everything with this guy, one of my top five eps, I reckon, Brett Blake on growing up in Forest Field and how that shaped him. Right, the suburb's rough. It's a rough suburb. Yep. Um, it was quite fighty. <laughs> you know, you probably you probably saw a lot of things that you and which now to me are like at the time were pretty normal, you know, like seeing fights on street, people getting bashed after school and things like that. And like you kind of become desensitized to it. Does that make sense? And you're like, oh, that's fucking yeah, that's just normal. And then when you leave and then you go, Oh, that was fucking hectic. You don't realize how crazy the shit you've seen is until you leave. And what were you like in that environment? So little Brett Blake, is he fighting after school? Is he using humour to avoid fights? Is he like, like where do you fit into this, you oh, know, he's, infrastructure? He's thriving. He's yeah. loving it. <laughs> <laughs> this is his element. This is his element. <laughs> now, I would say um, I liked the place because it kind of felt a little bit lawless. Um, we used to ride our, uh, like our, our BMX bikes around. We used to have jumps set up by the Creek. You know, we used to throw shopping trolleys into the Creek. There used to be these things called, they're not watermelons, they're pig melons. Mm. And you used to throw them on the road and watch cars hit them. And it was fun. It was yeah. so much fun. <laughs> um, but the problem was then like having fun, being a terror, you yeah. know, we creating flying foxes and, you know, getting into the occasional scrap here and there, um, but then going to a school environment is where it really, you know, that's where you, I probably, I didn't, I didn't go well. Mm. I, I struggled. No, a lot of those skills aren't transferable to the classroom. Like it's rare that a teacher says, okay, it's time to go out and throw a stone fruit at an automobile. You know <laughs> yeah, what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's like, Hey, can anyone jump this desk? I've got this. I've got this. <laughs> so were there you know, then challenges within the schooling system? Like, did you find it just difficult to proceed through school or, do, or were you able to kind of scrape by with your your wits and your charm? Um, I feel like I kind of was, probably that's where comedy most developed. I mean, obviously the family, my family are full of fucking smart asses and that's kind of how we complement each other is by giving each other shit. But um, I'd say the schooling system kind of like, Cause I remember day one, day one, I got, I think I got on in school suspension on day one. So, (laughs) (laughs) fucking hell, it's turning into the Brett's cool podcast. Um, And here's something else I did, which is pretty awesome. So what would have the in school what what would that have been on day one? What could you have possibly done on day one to deserve day, that? Day one, mum loves telling me this one. Um and she because I was I kind of did a show about it was called Bogan Genius many yep. years later, but um 
She goes, do you remember when you did this? And I was like, oh, no, but now I, now I do. Because we year one, we had two teachers because it obviously it's your first day in school. And we had to do like a basic exercise. And I can't remember what that exercise was. Was It was writing your name and your address or whatever it was. And then I remember, because it was two teachers, and one teacher went and saw this other kid. And um, then she left and the other teacher came over and said, oh, why haven't you done this to this girl? And she said, oh, the other teacher's coming back. And um, she's going to help me with it. So she said, I didn't have to do it just now. And then that teacher went, oh, okay, and then left. So I was like, okay. Mm. <laughs> and I didn't know how to do the exercise. And I saw that interaction. Yeah. And then that teacher came <laughs> yeah. up to me and said, oh, why haven't you done that? And I said, oh, the other teacher said that I didn't have to do it. Mm. And then she left. And then the other one came over that. And I just kept saying yeah. the other, and I just kept playing them off each other. So I didn't have to do the work. And then, yeah, day one uh, was in the principal's office and my first lunch was sitting outside the principal's office. I mean, I think there's got to be an element of like if you're a teacher, yes, you're pissed off, but you've also got to go – like maybe the reason you're at the principal's office on day one is the principal's like like new talent in like the AFL draft or something. Yeah. We've, We've got one. I've got to have a look at this kid who's worked it out already. He's hacked the system on day one. I've got to get him into the office. Also, imagine being tricked by a fucking five-year-old. Five-year-old. <laughs> or whatever He's the hell it a, is. Run a real successful scam on yeah, you. Yeah, yeah. Both of you. Yeah. <laughs> He's two, played not, you off against each other. Not one adult, two. And then, um, yeah, I remember sitting out the front of the office. Uh-huh. It was like a demandable thing. And the the um the principal for the younger kids was she was quite nice. I think her name was Mrs. Little. She was a real sweetheart. She gave me a free pen, like a nice pencil. Okay. Which had all this, which is kind of rewarding bad behaviour when you think about it. Mm. Um, but then I sat out the front, and then I remember all the teachers coming in on their lunch break and just looking at me, going, "Oh, here's trouble." And it kind yeah. of, then it, I think that kind of stuck. But also, I kind of kept in that vein of. I found read I, yeah you didn't know what reading was and when they asked you to read out aloud it was fucking overwhelming and then spelling I could never get right I still don't know which there is the correct one I just use one and you can fucking figure the rest out for yourself <laughs> you know what I'm trying to say why do you have to bring it up you know the i the I just use the t h e r e and then it's your fucking problem <laughs> yeah get some context clues is what you're suggesting yeah. by which there I actually meant. You know what? That is a good point because in most cases when somebody gets – and I admit I'm the sort of person that in the past would have probably got a little bit uppity around the correct usage. But now I realize how ridiculous that is because if you can tell from context – like, I will meet you there. You don't think, oh, no, you're talking about the possessive as in belongs to, I will meet you in the place it belongs to. Like, that makes no sense. That's ridiculous. Yeah. I know what you mean. <laughs> it's more effort to go, like, I'll meet you over there. Then go, actually, yeah. the one you used is the yeah. person because of the eye. And you're yeah. like, actually, you I know? don't want to meet you anywhere because you're fucking annoying. <laughs> yeah, you're not my you. friend. <laughs> fuck off. <laughs> I'm going to meet some other guys. They're better than you. Yeah. (laughs) They're less judgy. And it's like, man, I've given you all the clues. Like, let's not waste another 10 seconds of my life. And it's it's funny when you even go, like, you talk about dyslexia or struggling to read. And no one ever fucking takes it on board and then go, and they'll be like, "Uh, actually, it's spelled this. And you're like, shut the fuck up, you know? Oh, yeah. Well, so firstly, when it's undiagnosed, but do you know, 
Do you think as an adult, particularly because you're a comedian and perhaps maybe, you know, you like make jokes about these things yourself or you play it off yourself, but do you think actually that it doesn't get taken into consideration? Like the fact that you are, I mean, because I know that I've say, for example, worked on television shows or something where somebody might have, you know, dyslexia or, you know, some other thing that means that they need to see notes a lot earlier or they couldn't read something off an auto cue if it needed to be enough. You know, you just have to do something else to consider that. And you don't think about it until you need to think about it. Do you, do you feel like people do kind of ignore it or dismiss it or sort of laugh it off in real life or do they take it into consideration? I mean, because it's kind of my fault. I mean, yeah. well, you got to own a bit of it. It's like, well, I joke about it on stage. Mm. I joke about it with my mates. It's all very funny. Um, but then again, it's like I, I, I'm kind of lucky in the space you know, like, you know, I remember doing the thing with you before and, you know, I get the stuff a little bit beforehand. I just need a, like, I just need a little bit of notice for reading things so I can rewrite it phonetically how I would write. Is that phonetically the right word for that? Yeah, like, I believe so. Yeah. But- so I just spell it and it's all spelt wrong, mm. but that's how I spell it. And so I know what that word means. So I've just got to do it my own way. And then I, you know, I still use the yellow paper. I still wear it like yellow glasses at home sometimes because I find it helps. You just got to do whatever helps. But, um, yeah, that's how I, I deal with it, I suppose. Malaysian author and comedian Jason Leong is ridiculously funny. He's been coming to Australia for, uh, for a while now. Will asked him how he first ended up coming to the Melbourne Comedy Festival. So this was in 2015. Mm. And my first room was the region room too. Oh, is that right? In the town hall, yeah. <laughs> um, it was a bunch of us. Uh, they, uh, the festival did something which to this day, I think is one of their best moves. They curated a show called Comedy Zone Asia. Mm-hmm. And it's a bunch of comedians from Asia coming together and they put us up in uh, uh, in a hotel and then they like program uh, 22 shows at the whole festival to give to give comedians who have never done the festival before outside the system to come in and enjoy the festival. So it's me, uh, uh, two other Malaysians, uh, 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 a comedian from Hong Kong, from India, two from Hong Kong and one from India. So there's six of us. And we had the time of our lives because after one show, after our show, we would go out and watch two to three shows a night and then end up at the festival club. You know? And our brains be fried from comedy, but man, in that one month, I saw all types of comedy. Stand-up comedy, sketch comedy, improv comedy, musical comedy, the weird, absurd comedy, a lot of weird stuff that I've never seen before. Uh, saw some nudity, didn't expect <laughs> that. <laughs> that. Um, yeah, it was so great. Uh, my fr- the f- a fellow comic, Joanna Seo, who's who was the castmate, she says that, uh, she said that, it's like a scholarship. It's a comedy scholarship where we go and l- they give us money and we can learn. We we were in an ocean of comedy. You know, one night, you know, you know, like a night there's like 800 shows. We watch almost everything and it's, it really opened my mind to what a stand-up comedian can do. You know, uh, because prior to that, we just like performing the Southeast Asia circuit. And ever since then, a- every single comic that has come from Southeast Asia to Melbourne has really said the same thing, which is, this is, I never knew we could have all this happening, you know, and we we, we keep coming back. So I think Comedy Zone Asia is one of the best things that uh, the festival has done and uh, it's 
such an eye-opening experience and also it's such a good way to experience Melbourne. Melbourne is a city, city with a lot of characters. So, and every year that I come back, I feel like I've gotten to know the city better. And this year is the first time I feel like I'm not a tourist or uh, an outsider. I feel like this is my hometown, you know? So, uh, so it's been six years. So it's, it's absolutely uh, great, you know? Um, and yeah. Okay. So I'm firstly fascinated by that first year. So, because that idea of going to see all those shows, like to enthusiastically throw yourself into it, was that, because there are some comedians, and and this is not a judgment, by the way, some comedians don't like to watch comedy at all. They find it influences what they do or the, you know, any of those sort of things. That's okay. Like, you know, there's no- I have a lot of jokes about golden showers. Yeah, there's no right or wrong way to do it. I don't anymore, so it's fine, please. <laughs> I'm doing my bit. Hey. You know? <laughs> Finally, the white savior. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Um, no, but I, yeah. I think that um, it is an undervalued uh, like part of the joy of the festival is the opportunity to go and see other people or to enjoy other people's work. And did you come over knowing that that like is that I guess part of your intrinsic personality that if. Like, it strikes me that to be able to study medicine and be able to be good at that, and as you said, it was the top of the scientists, sciences and you yeah. just like the idea of yeah. being able to do the thing that was the hardest yeah. to do. Yes, yes. Then was that similar to the approach with comedy? Did you attack it with that sort of vigor of I'm going to soak as much knowledge as I possibly can about comedy up uh, quickly? Yeah, I think that's a very, uh, very insightful question. And I think I've never considered that before, but I think it has to be a lot of it has to do with what you just said, which is the the idea that if you want to be good at something, it, you have to prepare and and watch and, and learn. You know, and there's no better way uh, than smack dab in the middle of the festival where so many talented performers are performing. And you're right because when I go to this kind of shows, I'm mentally taking notes. Oh, he's doing this. He's doing it this way. He's doing this to the crowd. And so it's it's a good learning process. You're absolutely right. And and I think. Even even to this day, even this festival, I'm going out to watch shows, trying to see how I can improve uh, my craft. And uh, things like watching, and I think I learned a lot also from watching non-traditional stand-up comedians, like Gary Starr, Ruben K, who, yeah, they are not doing stand-up per se, but their showmanship, stagecraft, their silliness, their clowning, Ruben's singing, uh, uh, Gary's... Uh, uh, you know, silly prop work. It's it's all part of what can be funny on stage. It's so wide now. So yeah, I mean, I I'm going there to learn and try to be um, like to soak in like a sponge. You know, like I'm gonna soak in as much knowledge as I can. You know, and you're right. I think that's part of uh, my personality. How much of you is outside in, like mm -hmm. which is what we're just talking about there, taking you know things from the outside and bringing them inside versus inside out? Like you know, do, do, do you have to fill the bucket up first before you can sort of put something back out there? Is it like an even balance? Like where do you feel like you know? Because eventually you're you know, you have something to say. Yes. yes you're yes. the person who's standing up there on the stage. You yeah, know, yeah. You're the person who's putting together this show. Right. Like how much of that is a filtration of like, you know, I mean, of course we all are taking things from 
the world, but how much of it is a, how do I put this? How much is if it is one day I just woke up and there was a song in my head and I sat down at a piano and I played the song versus how much of it is I'm the most brilliant DJ in the world and I can take, you know, all these various elements and samples and mix them together into something that's new and unique. Uh, right. What do you think it is for you? Right. So, so uh, it's, it's, either, it's nature versus nurture. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So I think, um, I think uh, as I grow older um, and life happens more, I guess, the, the inside bucket feels more, um, it's more of that. It's more in, inside going outwards you know and when you take in uh, like watching other shows that's just that's technical knowledge you know but as life happens inside for example having a having a ch- child uh, she's three years old having that thing happen to my friend uh, Riza and then internalizing it processing the trauma that's a lot of you know in, internal stuff uh, that builds up and then okay how do I present this on stage in <laughs> in a presentable way and not just shouting at people, you know, like, <laughs> and, and saying, fuck the system, you know. Uh, there's, there's a lot of that, you know. I would say, um, in the beginning, when I first started, there's a lot of like, just out observing and then retelling it, you know, repackaging some, br- and <laughs> repackaging something yeah. that's mundane and woo, look at how amazing <laughs> my observational comedy is, you know. Like, look at the differences between three races. Woo! Yeah. I'm a genius, you know. Uh, I remember Joe Rogan once said something to the effect of uh, levels of comedy. Like the first level is you tell the world what they see and that's and what's funny, and then the second is like um, you 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 let people know what you think is funny, which I think is you know in a way it's harder. But as we go, uh, and again, like it's a relationship where it's the your fan base and you, they both are growing. So if you grow, if you as they move on with their lives and you keep talking about the same shit, you're going to lose fans. So you have to, your art has to mature along with your life. So I think that it's more life happens having a child, having, having uh, to move out of, uh, out of your country to another, trying to settle into another country. All that is, is material. Fortune Feimster is a US comedian who will probably be the first to tell you that they never really thought that they'd end up in an action movie, but that's exactly what happened. They're in a TV show called Fubar with Arnold Schwarzenegger, and Will wanted to know what it was like working with Arnie. Yeah, it's it's very surreal because he's someone who's been famous my whole life, and there are very few people like that and he's world famous um that's a different level of fame that is harder you know to come by these days um he's just like everywhere you go you're seeing people when you you watch people discover that he's walking by or they're about to meet him their eyes like get really big they're like especially men who grew up watching him that was he was their (laughs) movie star you know yeah. Men lose their minds. They're just like all their boy boyhood dreams come true, you know, right in front of their face. And he and he's very kind to people, shaking hands and taking pictures and he knows, you know, in a in a very humble way, he knows the power and the fame that comes with him. Um and he doesn't take it for granted. So that's nice to see that he he knows that if he makes these small gestures, it can really make someone's day. 
So he really goes out of his way to do that for people. So it's fun to watch by, by proxy. And it's it's wild to be in the show because, you know, I'm from the States. I've been to, say, like Australia. This I've been to Australia three times. Um, but, like, I'm not, like, an international, like, known person. And um, not anywhere in the level he is. And our show is, like, number one all over the world right now in countries I didn't even know how Netflix and that's the kind of power that he has, you know, <laughs> have you thought about that in relation to fame? And I'm not suggesting necessarily that, you know, anyone it's possible is going to be as famous as Arnold Schwarzenegger as it feels like almost an old fashioned idea that movie stars are that big an identity. And he was obviously bigger than just movies. But like you said, you're now in this show that's attached to him. The people who enjoy him all over the world are seeing you. And one of the things about you is that, you know, you I think that if people see you, you, you're distinctive looking, you have a distinctive personality, like you're clearly identifiably you. Like, do you think about like that, that next level of fame or recognition or like how it, how it may or does affect your life? Is that something that you actually have to, you know, seriously actually have a think about? I mean, I can't imagine what it's like to be someone like him. I mean, there's nowhere that he goes where people don't know who he is and like say like 20 of his catchphrases to his face. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Get to the chopper. I definitely have a very distinct look, like you said. Uh, I've been lucky to be working pretty consistently in the States uh, for the last 12 years and have been on some projects like Chelsea Lately, your Mindy Project, um, this movie offers Christmas Party, these different things that people know me by. Um, so I get a lot of people coming up to me on a pretty, pretty regular basis, but in a very polite, like, oh, I really like what you do, or, you know, they high-five me. It's a very familiar mm-hmm. exchange. Like, they kind of have this, um, like, oh, we're old pals kind of thing. Um, so... I get that, which is very flattering that like people recognize what I do and enjoy it. Um, but I don't have like paparazzi, you know, chasing me down the street. (laughs) That's his level. Mine's just like very cool people being like, Hey, you're doing a good job. And that's, to me, that's amazing. So it's, so it doesn't really change my life. You know what I mean? I have a, yeah, I have a very normal existence. This podcast is about, people and their life philosophies and I wanted to ask you do you have a life philosophy of any kind it can be a relation to work life love it doesn't really matter and also an appropriate answer is no but uh, (laughs) but that is the premise of the show so I'm gonna ask you do you have one well I don't have like uh like a fun saying like a mantra or anything like that um for me I just I don't I guess my philosophy is to enjoy everything I'm doing to have a genuine like excitement for it, you know, I, I find that I uh, when I when I wake up in the morning and I'm I'm positive about the day and excited about the things, then I can feel the difference in doing those things. Um, so I always try to treat everything like I'm pumped for it, like I'm excited to be here, even if I know it's going to be like a long filming day. It's just like oh, I get to learn something new today. We're going to have a cool moment. I can be moody like anybody else, but I really try to make the most of opportunities and 
and just be positive about it. And I feel like that positivity also comes through in my comedy and how I talk to people in my life. Um, it's just how I am, you know, on stage, but it's how I am in life as well. So that's interesting that you say that because that was honestly one of the questions that I wanted to ask you because your stand-up in particular, which is the thing that I love first and foremost about everybody. I'm a stand-up myself and I love stand-up and I love people who are stand-ups and I, to be honest, like, you know, it's great that you're working with Arnold Schwarzenegger, but really, you know, I love watching people's stand-up and, yeah. you know, I feel like I learned so much more about them from watching their stand-up and yours just radiates joy. And sometimes if something radiates joy, it could be cheesy or soppy or sugary, but it is none of those things. It is genuinely joyous. And I wanted to know whether that was like, you know, a, an artistic creation or that was just a representative of who you are the rest of your day. I think it's definitely um, comes from who I am. I'm, I'm not like... I almost said I'm not putting on a show when I do stand up, which is funny because that's literally <laughs> what I'm doing. Um, <laughs> but I, it's kind of one of those like what you see is what you get. That's very much me on stage. Those are my stories about my life, about my relationship, about my family, about my childhood. And some of those stories like take, for instance, in my sweet and salty special, I talk about coming out. I talk about coming out to my family and I go through each one of my family members and what that experience was like in the moment when that happened, however many years ago, that was a very difficult situation. It was a very, you know, anxiety. I was full of anxiety. I was scared. I didn't know if my relationship with my family would change forever. So it's based on a really difficult thing. But where I'm at now, I'm at the other end of it, where I'm happy because I'm who I am. I'm getting to live my life in a very authentic way. My family loves me, and it didn't you know, ruin our relationship. So now I can speak from that experience from a happy place. Here's a fun story about coming out. I can be silly about it, joyous about it, um, in a way that sort of takes the pain away if that makes sense. It makes a great deal of sense. I'm interested in how you know, one of the things you just mentioned there that I think is an incredible insight is, you know, there's an old comedy cliche, which is, you know, tragedy plus time equals comedy. And I'm always interested in, sometimes you'll see a comedian who's going through a tragedy and they're talking about it on stage at the moment it happens. The most famous example from recent time is like Tig Notaro, obviously, you know, at Largo when she famously found out her breast cancer diagnosis and talked about it that very night. So someone's in the middle of the trauma and processing the trauma in the middle of it. Then I recently watched John Mulaney's uh, new special, which is him talking about, you know, <clears throat> a really terrible time in his life that he's come out the other end of now and I was like oh it's interesting to see you know you process something that happened two three years ago now it feels like you have an insight on that when do you know when do you know it's the right time to be able to like you say find the joy in something that might have been quite a hard experience in the first place well I come from a family who always saw the funny in things even in tragedy even when we were going through difficult times you know we didn't 
have a lot of money growing up or losing a loved one or whatnot, you know, we would always find the funny in whatever was going on. We'd make each other laugh. And that was always our way of dealing with those things and making it feel a little lighter. It didn't make the situation easier per se, as far as you still had to get through that situation, but it helped face it a lot better. And so I think that's, you know, going back to philosophy, sort of how I take on the world now. And I use humor to, to get through difficult situations and find the, the light in it, the light in whatever dark things happening And so, you know, as far as when I then bring it to the stage, usually by the time I brought it to the stage, several years have passed. So I've had time to get to an even lighter place with it. So it makes it, I don't know if the word is digestible, but, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't evoke that response from the audience where they're going, oh, because as a comedian, (laughs) you don't want the oh, you go, no, 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 I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine. When it comes to radio personalities and their content game on uh, social media, I don't know if anyone's doing it better than Liam Stapleton. Uh, Melbourne listeners will know Liam from Ben, Liam and Bell. They do the Brecky show there. Before that, they were in Adelaide. And before that, of course, uh, nationwide, Ben and Liam on uh, Triple J Brecky. But before all of that, what was Liam Stapleton doing and how did he meet Ben Harvey, the guy who would go on to become his close friend and co-host throughout all of those adventures. Kind of that thing, he was sort of, you know, I mentioned the raw comedy stuff, like that sort of time in my life, he was sort of doing the same thing. So he was, and so we sort of saw each other at the, you know, the Rhino Room, we were doing sort of gigs there and at the Cranker and we sort of were in the same scene and he, I was doing my show on the weekend with, with Big Al and, uh, and then Ben was doing his show with another guy and doing like a mid-dawn sort of shift and then... One day, uh, you know, his co-host was, was sick and I got asked to fill in and then we got to fill in on like a, like a drive show. This is on, on Fresh, the, the community station. And then, yeah, just sort of, we just sort of hit it off there and then. And I suppose we were both, like, I think it's rare enough to f- stumble into something that you love and then like super rare to find someone who loves it as much as you and has the same sense of humor and also just the same hustle, right? Like we both... Wanted, even though he had his other job and I was sort of, you know, like, how was I even bringing money in at the time? I don't know. I was basically just living home with mum and dad, like doing, you know, I was, I was really young and, uh, you know, maybe doing a few gigs here and there, but, uh, we both sort of decided that it was a thing that we really wanted to do early on. But even though there was like no, you know, there's no clear path or no real, promise that we were going to get a job anywhere we just we were doing this thing for free and it seems like we just prepared more than the next guy sometimes you know what i mean like we just sort of maybe just cared a little more stayed around a little longer and there was a lot of great people who um who who worked at fresh but then there was i suppose there was also people that had a lot of other stuff on in their life they might have been a bit older they probably couldn't give it as much time as we could and uh yeah then we sort of we were doing just like one show a morning together and then we did like two two shows we did like the the Tuesday, Wednesday, and then it was the Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. And then there was like one team left who did the Monday and the Friday. And they sort of said, right, we're going to like turn this into a job. And we're like, holy shit, here we go. Like this is, 
you know, we've really made it if we manage to do this. And I remember we actually, like we were sort of, the other team were really good. Um, and so it, it wasn't a play, but it was, it, you know, we, we were trying to be smart about it. And we sort of said to the station, there was only a limited amount of money, but we met another guy who was also doing some stand-up at the time. And we were like, hey, why don't we cut you? We turn this two-wage, right, into a three-wager. And we, you can become the producer, even though we had no idea what the producer, like we didn't even know what a radio producer was. We just knew like shows had them. Yeah. And they, and so, so they, they sort of went for it, but then it, it obviously turned like a community radio minimum wage of two in, into like a quarter, you know what I mean? Like we were really splitting it down, splitting it yeah. down. And, uh, but yeah, we still didn't know, like that was, that was a great little team. We had like, you know, we had a, a lot of like a, a real vision, but we, we didn't really know what we were doing. Like even like with the producer well, like, so when you say you had a vision and you, but you didn't know what you mm. were doing what was the vision i think we just both wanted to to make the sort of stuff that we're into like radio like you know doing like skits and stuff and they, they probably sucked we still do skits they probably suck a lot of the time but like just <laughs> you know what i mean like it's just stuff that's a Mate, little bit Sat- more saturday night like saturday night live does skits for yeah. 30 years and half the time they suck yeah, well, so they do, they it's do, okay yeah. i've never been I, I know that's controversial but i've never actually been that big of a fan of that show there's a few like great moments but yeah any given episode i'm like eh, you know not for me anyway so we uh you know but that that was that sort of like more and we were like trying to get out of the studio as much as we could and just try and like i suppose like rattle cages and, and make some noise. Like I think we did this like guerrilla marketing thing when we first started where we'd um, like print big photos of our face off and go around and like stick it on the billboards of all the commercial <laughs> radio. Just do, you know, shit stuff like that. Or like, you know, yeah. and we, we went around and, and uh, there, were, there was one time where we thought, oh, we should do this bit called like breakfast on breakfast. So we get this producer guy, uh, Michael, we'd get him to call the other radio station and tell a fake story. And then when they moved to him, we'll be like, ah, it's actually us from, you know, Fresh. And we're simulcasting. So we were on SAFM and Fresh at the same time. And uh, just stuff like that where you could really like, you couldn't so really fun. get into trouble because there was no, it felt like no one was listening. So like, who cares, right? Just have a lash. And uh, yeah, I loved that. You know, I think that sort of fed the addiction of it all. And especially when it was, you know, Ben was able to to, to quit the dairy farm. He was probably, you know, he was, would have been making less money than he was making you know, milking cows, but it was kind of like, well, that was already kind of the first dream to just do it as a job. Yeah. And then when the Triple J thing came up, that was just like insane. Like that was well, just- Well, let's, before we get move on to Triple J, mm. I still want to just spend a tiny little bit yeah, more yeah, time at sure. Fresh because like you've spoken about it being community radio and absolutely it was community radio, but very much in the same way as Triple R is more than community radio in Melbourne. Fresh- in my experience, actually has quite a good listenership in Adelaide and is like a well-known community radio station. And it's not, you're not talking about some, you know, absolutely nobody listening here. Yeah, People well, would have been aware of. This is this is true. Like, I, you know, it, it felt to us like we had, and if anything, yeah. we had probably the strongest bond we've ever had with listeners there because we literally had like, you know, there's probably a lot of young people listening and like Snapchat was a thing at the time. We had like a show Snapchat and we would be sending throughout the day like Snapchats to listeners and they're still listening. Like I, I literally bump into people in Adelaide and I'm like, <laughs> I remember the listeners like full name because it's just like, yeah. it's such a, you know, community <laughs> sort of thing. The first station I was on was uh, PBAFM in Salisbury, which, uh, so one, one of my um, 
bo- former bosses, Ben Latimer at Nova, he he worked there. Richard Marslin started there. Yeah. Um, so which is and that's like out that's close that's in Salisbury, so that's out in the suburbs, yeah. right? Where I live. But that was your that was your real Ridgy Didge. Like it was like the death metal occasion cooking show, and after yeah. that it's the you know, <laughs> it's the Congolese drum line, and then Liam with uh, you know, <laughs> his comedy hour, uh, before Bruce with the best of the seventies. Um and that that was actually the lineup yeah. on Fridays. Um that's not even really a joke. That's it's they, they have the different best. like so you could tune in at any time yes. and you're getting like you're getting completely music different channel. from yeah, or it's just a completely different language and you don't even yeah. know what you're listening to. But I think those <laughs> particular communities like listen for those those bits. But that's real community radio. But yeah, tri- the triple R in Melbourne, there's Sin, uh, FBI in, in in Sydney. Like there's a lot of really cool stations that yeah. you, you know, it's basically it's the real deal. You're doing the job and you could, you could volunteer there tomorrow. That's, I'm such a big advocate for, for people just doing that and giving it a crack. So many people like message me all the time. Like, how do you get into radio? I'm like, well, you know, don't go to uni for it because there's no degree. Yeah. It's just like. Find somewhere that'll let you in the door yeah. and go in the door. And then, then you can get in other doors because yeah. that's experience already, right? I've like seen, once you've been one place, you can get to the next place. And I've seen, it's so cool seeing, like, I love seeing people that have enough hustle that, like we we did, Ben and I did a thing as well called Australian Radio School, which is a guy called Sean Craig Murphy in Adelaide. He runs that. It's a course that people can do. And we always, uh, we, we did that and then, you know, two, three times a year, we'll go back to the course and we, we talk at that course and it's just like a fun thing. And like, it's crazy how I, I give it, I literally give out my email at the end of every time. I'm like, Hey, anyone got any questions? If you want to come in, watch the show, or like whatever. And like out of like 20 people, like every time, maybe one yeah. person emails me and I'm like, that's insane. Like I they probably don't give a rat's about me, but I'm still like, if someone in radio, um, you're doing a course mate. on radio and you're like, no, mate, I absolutely understand exactly what you're saying. Like, which is if you've given somebody that like you're you're in the industry yeah. you've got a story about like success and how you can build yourself like what a great story by the way you did this course like you know i mean to just use this example yeah, as the yeah, one. Yeah. there's 20 people in that room yeah however many of them want to actually be in radio let's just say even to be generous let's say only 10 do mm. it's weird that you're doing that course if you don't want to be <laughs> completely in radio but let's just say yeah. 10 of the 20 do at least all those 10 should be in your email inbox immediately after you've given them the email oh, 100%, surely 100 right? and ben and i hounded people for year i know it sounds like annoying but that's you kind of got to be and like the that, that's the one thing i found as well like everyone's pretty nice, really. Like, Australia is, like, it's pretty small, really, and everyone's sort of, at the end of the day, most people have got each other's backs. There's not, you're not really finding many people who have massive egos, at least in my experience. Anyway, there's a few dickheads for sure, but most people are pretty genuine, and if you reach out and say, hey, I'd, you know, I'd really like some of your time, I'd like to ask you about this, this, and this. Most people are like, hell yeah. So, like, uh, Ben and I, we we had, uh, when we were working at Fresh, we had, like, our one week off, in. We worked Christmas and we were trying to really get this thing going and we, you know, we stayed and we had our one week off and we were like, let's do this. We're going to go to Melbourne and Sydney and we're going to meet um, like all the, the heads in, in radio. Like we had a couple of emails here and there of people like, oh, you know, that's Sam Kavanagh's email or whatever. You know, we know he works with Hamish and Andy or that that's Gemma Fordham or that's, you know, Ollie Wards, he's Triple J. We got his details through Tom Ballard. So we we're just like sending random emails. And, uh, 
it was awesome. Like most people, if you say like, Hey, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm a kid from Adelaide. Uh, we'd love to fly to Sydney to have five minutes of your time. Like they'll give you two hours of their time. They're not going to be like, like most, most of the people were in their office and they're like, right, what do you want to do? Like, this is what you need to do. Do less of this, do more of that. And it was awesome. And that, and then that sort of, I, I, I dare say that sort of put us on the radar for a lot of those stations that, you know, gave us offers at the, you know, within, within six to 12 months after there was offers from different radio stations and we, you know, and then, and then Triple J popped up and then that was like the, the, the one we went for, but it's, it's crazy when you, when you reach out how receptive people are. I mean, even, even working at, at the J's like Bryson Cachetta doing the show now and they're doing a really great job. But I, I remember Bryce when you talked about like letting, letting duels in, but Bryce was like, Bryce literally worked the front desk when Ben and I were doing the show there. And I was always like, this guy's great. Like we tried to get him on as, as much as we could just cause he had that, like, he was just really funny and he was just very humble guy who, who just had that hunger. Like he, he wanted to, he wanted to do it right. And there's so many people who just don't, but I, I, I feel like I could, I could tell that guy was going to do that show at some point. And he, he ended up doing it like not even that long after. Let's stay in Melbourne and go to another comic named Scout Boxall. And in this chat, they talked to Will about uh, accessibility in the comedy scene. There has been so many conversations around like making comedy more inclusive for women and making comedy more inclusive for people of colour. And the one side of that conversation that most people have neglected because they are from rich families and they personally come from intergenerational wealth and or have a lot of financial security outside of comedy is that these spaces are not accessible to working class people or people who live regionally and rurally and have to commute like serious hours in order to get gigs. And they're just not they're just not paid enough to be worth people's time or like cost of fuel or whatever. And like comedy now, I'm I it's absolutely 180. Like comedy now is a rich kids game for sure. For the for at least eighty five percent of people that I can think of in the scene, like every everyone has an arts degree, and a and a security blanket, like to fall back on, if things don't go their way. Yeah, it's so that's interesting to me. Like it's fascinating. Like I do think you're right, and it's not to diminish the other things, by the way, which are all great areas of inclusivity for us to concentrate on. Mm, like, mm. I, but it's I a lot. It's a lot easier to say, like, we need more more women on lineups rather than saying, like, we need to pay people more so they can afford to get here or so that they can afford childcare. Like, a young female comic who's a single mum is like, she's like, I just can't, like, I can't bring my kid to gigs because people freak out. He's like three. And I can't afford a sitter four nights a week. Like, that's so much money. Like, there's just... All of those, anything, as soon as money gets involved, people are like, oh, this isn't about just like making a blanket statement or like, you know, changing a lineup. This is actually about forking out money and then people can't do it. And yeah, and just- it is a different thing. And that's what, when we talk about like, you know, what people get paid for these things or the accessibility, we talk about a lot of the time <clears> – <throat> If you're in one of these art scenes, comedy scenes, you know, major cities, like not exclusively, but like, you know, Melbourne and Sydney in particular, you know, are are probably the strongest, most regular places that you can find work, you know, in particular in our industry in stand-up comedy. And 
like they I mean, you, if you don't, if you read a newspaper or watch the TV, you'll know that like those places are impossible for people to afford to live in anymore. Mm. So again, if the thing, if to do the thing you have to do, you have to go to the inner city where it exists, but you can't afford to live in the inner city. That then means that yes, you have to catch a train or drive your car or get a babysitter or live far, and then it becomes exclusionary to that group of people to be able to access it. So anyway, you were able to as a university educated uh, you know, <laughs> person who had someone to fall back on, economists <laughs> as parents, so it was fine. Yeah, I'm doing all right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you should see my tax liability. Oh, I'm dodging left, right and centre. <laughs> but, uh, but you... Yes, so you came in sideways. You sorry, we went off on a, a oh, big yeah. old rant there, but um, you came in sideways. You did this gig. You, mm. you you took your friends along, but did you like? Was there a catching the bug at that point, or was that like a? Did oh, you yeah. feel like that was going to be a gig. one and done? No, you were no, just no, no, you no. were ready to I go. I was yeah, I was I was loving it. Hated that I only had five minutes. Absolute slut for stage time. Mm. Oh, I was so stoked. What was it? Tell me what. How long ago was this, by the way? Because it's not that long ago. This was the beginning of 2018. Yeah. So, and COVID doesn't count. We just I'm not those counting two years. COVID. Yeah. <laughs> COVID Mentally, emotionally, count. I'm yeah. not counting them. Yeah. So it was like three years ago. And uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm kind of prodigious, you could say. Yeah. <laughs> but my ears, I don't know what. <laughs> Uh, what was the stage? Well, like, what was when you say I loved it? You know, mm. I am like. It talk it's it's short enough ago that you might be able to actually remember because oh, yeah. I can't remember how it felt. I can remember how <laughs> me thirty years ago has reframed how it felt. Yes, but I don't actually have any muscle memory or intellectual memory even really of how that first gig went. Most of it's just been constructed through my stories <laughs> through and storytelling and retellings over the years. But you might still remember what what was it that you felt. I remember, I remember it really well. I remember that gig. I remember my first crab lab. Mm-hmm. I remember my first, like, I remember my first of most big gigs. And like the first, like, honestly, it was the first ever stand up. like the, that open mic, there was four people in the audience. Three of them were my mates. One of them was another comedian who was waiting for his turn. Like it was dire. It was fucking dire. But when I, I did not have any nerves. I've never had stage fright. I got on stage and had pure focus and I had a captive audience. It was sick. It was so good. Like I felt so attuned to the present moment and I didn't feel stressed. I didn't feel worried about stuff. Like I just, it was, it was good. It was so, it was amazing. And I think that carried me through the first like two years of terrible gigs like gig in a pizza shop where the patrons don't know there's a gig happening oh. and there's just children <laughs> trying to enjoy a, a hammered pineapple pizza. That's not And I'm trying thing. to talk to them about <laughs> modern dating. What's that, happening? That kind of happened. I, it was called Compass Comedy and yeah. it was at a pizza slice bar on Ligon Street. So I got the receipts. That was a, that was a rough gig. I did that gig three times though, so... <laughs> <laughs> you got like a free pizza with it like that was the whole yeah. thing so if we're talking about fair pay <laughs> i mean 
Not bad, actually. (laughs) There's plenty of gigs I've done where I haven't got a free slice of pizza. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) Shout out to Annie Louie for running that gig. (laughs) I love that you did it three times. I mean, that's incredible. Okay, final clip in this summer series. Let's go to an episode now uh, with a New Zealand comic named Guy Williams. And here they're talking about comics who have been cancelled, cancellation generally. Uh, fascinating chat. Yeah, like okay. The Louis C.K. one in particular. Yeah. So here's my feelings about that as well, which yeah. was he was absolutely no doubt like one of, if not the best comedian in the world. He, like, was, he was basically rated number one yeah. by mo- a lot of people. He, I, and I was one of those people, I think. If, if you'd asked me at the time, you know, who are the best people doing it? I, his name would have been one that definitely would have been top of mind for me. Like, yeah. I love the structure. I loved his perspective. I'd seen him live. I'd seen him do what he does. Like, I, I loved yeah. it. And I thought he was also the person who was in the best position to when the allegations came yeah. out to be able to say, here's, I, I acknowledge what I've got wrong. Yeah. Here's how I'm going to go about yeah. making sure this doesn't happen again. Yeah. Here's me pulling apart. Like, here's this show that I'm going to write yeah. that is going to be about yeah. how I fucked up yeah. and you know, what I've done to like yeah. make sure that that won't happen again and, yeah. and, and shows you all how I acknowledge that I genuinely understand the hurt I've caused to other people, that yeah. the power that was exerted yeah. behind the he scenes. Could have, he, could have do, he could have donated the millions of dollars that it earns right. to charities because he's rich as fuck, you know? Like, he could have- The whole yeah. next special. He said, I'm going to do this apology tour. Yeah. Like, you know- like yeah. and genuinely, because like he would have made the world enough, a better place. Yeah, and then say, and also, by the way, every bit of money like out of this. Yeah. Instead, he was like, ah, oh, there's a whole audience who will just be coming to my shows regardless. And no, he, well, it's because he doesn't think he did much wrong. No, and he's got Clearly. merchandise that says sorry. Yeah, and uh, he called it sorry, and he's like, he's like mocking the whole idea of it. And I, I actually watched this. I was not a Louis C.K. fan. This is embarrassing to admit. I've actually liked Louis C.K. more since the special. I wouldn't support that as a fucked up thing to say. Can I just rewind, rewind? He's what, comedy, you mean? He's so funny. Yeah, he's funny. And he had, I, I hated his sexual stuff because he, he was really sexual. It was so bad as a comedian. Because you go to an open mic night and every, because he's a very experienced comedian who could handle that material. Every open micer cannot do their jizz material or whatever. And you just go to this most, like a Monday night in, in Auckland would be the most disgusting material you've ever heard. Like every teenage boy's is gross confessions and that bomb and bomb and bomb doing this because if you you won't bomb that hard if you just do normal material about airport or something but if you're talking about jizz it'll be so quiet it'll be like you want to like punch yourself in the face just to knock yourself unconscious so you don't have to hear it anymore and uh so he was a t- i didn't like his sexual material and since then the one good thing is it has meant his material has been slightly sexual and i've actually preferred that but i haven't wanted to support him and i thoroughly denounce lucy k i think he's a wonderful comedian but like, I'm just so disappointed, and obviously the um, sexual misconduct allegations, and then on top of that, just the way he's handled it has been infuriating That's to me. And me I think too. that it was really the thing that fixes there was a way back. Yes, that wasn't such and there a still huge. Is. That wasn't such a huge learn. transgression mm. that you couldn't have. Like, I mean, it was to the people that affected absolutely. Of course, like, and he would have to understand that and talk about that and really take on board that he had yeah. sincerely affected some other people's lives forever. It yeah. isn't just as he describes it, now you know my kink. No, yeah. it wasn't that. Yeah. Like the power dynamics there were out- outrageous. Yeah. And then the power that was expressed 
off stage to keep that quiet and to hide his secret horrific. and to protect him. Yeah, you've was it. horrific. Yeah. And that and you can't move on and not acknowledge that. Yeah. But his comedy Yeah. Yes. His comedy's great. And this is where it's it like Michael Jackson is probably yeah. the greatest pop star ever, but I also believe he's a, a pretty horrific uh, human being, you know? I'm not gonna play him before my show. It's interesting, isn't it? Like so that but would you if you're in the car by yourself and Yeah. Yeah, because well, it's childhood nostalgia as yeah. well, and I love that music. But I do also think about, yeah, it also makes me reflect and gross out because I can't get like the documentary and stuff out of my out of my head. It's it's a, it's a really tricky one, but you don't want to promote it anymore. There's an argument that I hear a lot, and I'm not sure where I like what I feel about it. So I'd love to hear what you think about yeah, it. Yeah, you got to hear is... from another white man. I think that's important. <laughs> What's my take? Uh, no, I'm but... loving this conversation, white, by the way, but this must be the most common comedian on comedian podcast conversation ever. So I hope it's not tedious for the fans, but I personally am loving it. I, I'm i not sure that this is either though. Like, I mean, I do think that there is even a hesitance, hesitancy because I want to circle back to Dave Chappelle in a minute. Yeah, um, let's get stuck in. I think there's a hesitancy to to discuss these people in a critical way. I like, was worried saying it to you because I was like, for all I know, Will lived in LA. For all I know, he's mates with Louis C.K. I don't know. I, and you might be like, edit it out, man, because my manager's Louis C.K.'s manager or some shit. I, I know, know them both. My manager is Dave Chappelle's manager. Yeah. Like, you know. <laughs> so, yeah. No, so that is all true. But I think it's important we have these conversations. Now, yeah. the, the thing I was going to ask you is, I hear an argument in relation to Michael Jackson quite a lot, and I'm not sure how I feel about it, which is that if you... Like he wasn't the only one who made Billy Jack. You know, that like he yeah, 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 yes, Michael Jackson is the singer, but he doesn't benefit from it anymore. He's not with us. There are a whole bunch of other people, producers, you yeah, know, musicians, songwriters or whatever who aren't yeah. terrible people yeah. who worked on that. Yeah. Are you like can you enjoy it? Like I mean, yeah. I guess I guess what I'm asking is like I hear that quite a lot that of people. Music saying, is in your bones. Yeah. You can't give it up. It's like it's exactly like the Catholic Church. Like I grew up Catholic and Catholicism is still in me whether I want it to be or not. It's what I grew up with. And like there's still positive memories about the Catholic Church for me, even though it's a really fucked institution and I will denounce them every chance I get because horrible. The reason Bill Cosby's not in jail is because in Philadelphia, the statute of limitations is only like four years because the Catholic Church lobbied. It's so fucked. Um, so yeah, the evil, it's the evil you do and then the evil they do afterwards to cover it up as we've been talking about. Um, with Michael Jackson, absolutely, can I enjoy it? Yeah, it's some of my favorite music, but um, yeah, I'm just not going to promote it or anything like that, or you know, like put it before my show. I don't know. I, yeah, I don't know, but yeah, yeah, can I still enjoy it? Yes, I can, but like, I'm not going to talk about it and not going to. As I said, I, I I made the very embarrassing admission before that I enjoy Louis C.K.'s recent albums, but I still think he's yeah, he's embarrassing and he's he's ruined his own legacy. Oh, he has, and it's sad to me because actually because of what you say. Because some of his comedy is still like yeah. I mean he had a bit about like you know measuring COVID cases in nine eleven yes. which oh, is yeah, he's, one yeah, he's of great. Yeah. the great pandemic jokes. Yeah, like, this is good, man. You got me in the hot seat. I don't want to talk about this. I haven't admitted this to anyone before. I haven't. I'm trying to keep this like real quiet because I publicly I want to just yeah. denounce Louis C.K. every time I helped spear a um, petition to stop Louis C.K. from coming to New Zealand. And the reason being, I know it sounds ridiculous to some people saying like that, he's a comedian, who cares? He hasn't gone to jail. There's no yeah. charges against him. It's because uh, in comedy, um, sexual assault is a major, major, major it problem. Is. It's a major in problem. In New Zealand, it's a major problem. To put it in context for people, they had a hui in New Zealand for um, women in comedy. They had to up upgrade the room it was in three times because uh, – 
the number of people, they, you know, they thought 12 people come along to talk about the problems in the industry. They got like two, like every female comedian came to talk about it. It was crazy. And it was like, it's such a major problem. And I got asked to talk about it on New Zealand TV. And then um, I, I got up in the morning to do it. And I just, I didn't even say anything bad. I just said, I just said like, yeah, I think he's a sex offender. You shouldn't go support his mm. show. And I don't think he's repentant. And, and the, you know, the headlines like Guy Williams slams Louis. I didn't slam him. I just read out his Wikipedia. And, you know, I wasn't saying anything controversial at all, I don't think. But like, yeah, you just get into that weird yeah, you, online culture wars and stuff like that. So I, I think Louis, Louis C.K. is uh, very, very disappointing. I don't think anyone should support him or his live shows, but I still agree that he's a very talented comedian. So this then gets to the area where talented comedians, what is a proportional, uh, like, you know, I'm not saying that yeah. you, you can't talk about anything. Like, yeah. of course, you should be able to talk about every topic. But then, like, a certain topic becomes an obsession for comedians. So this circles us back to Dave Chappelle because Dave Chappelle, again, one of those people that has been in the cultural zeitgeist of when people name who are the best people at, the, at, at, at who do what we do. Yeah. He is a name that is always constantly measured in that, mentioned in that conversation yeah. as well. He's one of my favorites of all time. But then again, so is Bill Cosby. Yeah. 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 Well, again, Bill Cosby was a – Great. He uh, was he was yeah. potentially the greatest. Like he was he was up there top five for a lot of people for a long time. And I, I used to joke that like um there used to be an argument like who's the greatest of all time, Richard Pryor or Bill Cosby. And then the one good thing about Bill Cosby's allegations is it made it really easy to say Richard Pryor. Yeah. But Richard Pryor uh, Richard Pryor was also yeah. very problematic in his own very. in own ways. Um but yeah, but like I mean yeah. there was a lot of like, you know, I mean domestic was, violence in general, like historically, has been like it's very hard to look there's a whole bunch of people who you know, would be struck off our cultural, um, you know, registers yeah. based on John Lennon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, mm. uh, we're we, we're both on the same Reddit pages. Obviously, I can see, <laughs> I can see. But this has been, yeah, it's good to it's good to talk about this with someone because I don't talk about this with many people. And, so the, yeah. it, the interesting thing about Dave Chappelle to me is that, well, firstly, look, there's a, and it's the same a bit with Ricky Gervais to me, which is like inequality of like power dynamics. So like often. It feels like Ricky Gervais or Dave Chappelle are responding to negative tweets they got. Yeah, and there yes. is a place to respond to negative tweets. Yeah, which is Twitter. Yeah, like if you want to respond to a negative tweet, then respond on Twitter, but yeah. don't dedicate twenty minutes of your multi-million-dollar Netflix special to responding to a tweet online. That is yeah. disproportionate power to me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right? You know, regardless of the topic, that is not punching up. That yeah. is punching down because. You're a multi-millionaire with like an army of people who support yeah. you and they sent a tweet. Yeah. All right, bit of a weird spot to end it, but we're going to end it nonetheless. Thank you for checking out uh, these highlights of Willosophy 2023. Uh, all the episodes are available in the feed, the Everyone Relax feed to scroll back and uh, check them out. Will Anderson is doing a brand new live show in 2024. Tickets are available now. I've got a link in the episode description. The show is called Will Will Legitimate. Will Legitimate. There's a link in the description. I'm producer Mike. Thank you for checking these out. Hope you are safe and well. Have had a good start to the year. I'll catch you later. Bye.